friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Hi guys, it's MC Lars with a very, very special MC Lars podcast. This week we have the creator of Roger Rabbit, Gary K. Wolf. Now, Wolf has written a lot of books and uh, he's perhaps best known for his Roger Rabbit series. There are three, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, and Who Whacked Roger Rabbit. And then he wrote a book called The Road to Toontown, which is a bunch of his short stories and then there's one about Jessica Rabbit in there and it's uh, kind of a collection that kind of leads up to the Roger Rabbit world. So I learned a lot of great things talking to Gary. I mean, one of the most interesting was that he said Eddie and Roger are two halves of the same person and that as Wolf has gotten older, he sees more Roger coming out, more joy and more play as he appreciates the beautiful things in the world. And I think that was like a really beautiful telling story. And we talked about you know, what it was like having his book made into a movie, uh, what it was like working with Steven Spielberg. It was just a very cool conversation. I also learned that he modeled Toontown on Santa Cruz. <laughs> he he wrote this book while he was living in San Francisco in the late 70s, early 80s. And in the book, to get to Toontown, you have to go over this big hill. So Toontown is actually Santa Cruz, which blew my mind, which I thought was super awesome. So Gary, thank you very much for your time, man. Like it was an honor meeting you and honor talking to you. And um, I definitely had a lot of questions, and he definitely talked to me for a very long time. We met at the student union at Boston University the afternoon before I played my show there with I Fight Dragon. So this is my conversation with Gary K. Wolf. I want to shout out my Patreon supporters. Shout out to the new ones, Carl, Matthew, and Ethan. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for your support. Chronicles of Narnia. We got one more left in that in that series after this month. And then a shout out to some of my older supporters, of course. Shout out to Peter, Scott, Matt, and Diane. Thank you all. You guys, you all have been super supportive for a very long time. It allows me to do things like this podcast, and it just is awesome. So hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. December is upon us. Enjoy this interview with one of my favorite writers as we talk about the origins of Roger Rabbit. Oh, before we get into that, I just want to say uh, when we were getting coffee after the interview, I was telling Gary how I do like lit hop stuff and I did a Poe EP and stuff. He goes, oh, when are you going to do a, an album on about my characters? So I was like, actually, Gary, funny you should ask. So I sent him the link to Notes from Toontown. And then he posted about it on Facebook, which was like really cool that he liked it and wanted to spread the word because I'm rap it's lit hop, right? I'm rapping by his character. So thank you, Gary. The conversation ends with... Uh, a song for Eddie from the EP, the Roger Rabbit EP. And the final thing I want to say is I'm not, I didn't do a Black Friday sale this year, but there is a promo code at the end of this podcast that will get you 50% off all of my merch on mclars.net. Yes, I am serious. So I wanted to say that. Okay, here's the interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very, very special episode of the MC Lars podcast. I'm here with Hugo Award winner, creative Roger Rabbit, science fiction legend, author, <laughs> uh, just one of the dopest men in the world. Please give it up for Gary K. Wolf. Woo. Hey, how you doing? Hey, thanks a lot. I think you got that right with dopest. Uh, <laughs> one of the dopiest guys I know. I don't know about the rest of it, though. <laughs> um. Gary, thank you so much for meeting me and talking to me today. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. It's um, You're very active in the Roger Rabbit uh, community on Facebook, and it's really cool how, how engaged you are with all the fans. You know, somebody just mentioned it the other day that um, they commended me for the fact that I 
uh, I answer every comment on Roger Rabbit, and I, I do that personally. And the reason I do that, when I was a kid, uh, I had some heroes. I had um, I had Roy Rogers. I had the Cisco Kid. I had a Jack Brickhouse, who was the announcer for the Chicago Cubs. And I used to write all my heroes' letters, and I was just tickled to death when they wrote me back. And so I said, you know, if I ever get to be anywhere near famous where anybody ever writes me a letter, I'm going to, I'm going to write them back. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of paying it, uh, paying it back for all those people who were nice to me. And you're like, a, you're an authority in the, in the, everyone has so many questions for you and you're, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so cool how engaged you are with the fans and that you see your fans in that way. It's, it's really admirable, man. Well, well I, I am, I am just tickled to death that a character that I created while I was sitting at my kitchen table uh, from 4 to 7.30 every morning uh, has become a cultural icon. And I, I'm, I'm just thrilled that people still know who Roger Rabbit is, Jessica, Baby Herman, Eddie Valiant. I'm thrilled that they know who I am. <laughs> I thought I would be, uh, be some hack writer who was doomed to obscurity by now. But it's just fun for me. And um, I enjoy doing it. I like to keep it going. And you uh, you put out Who Whacked Roger Rabbit pretty recently, right? Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, yeah, was uh, less than a year ago. Th th I've done three. I did um, I did the first one, of course, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which was the basis for the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Then I did Who P -P 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 Plugged Roger Rabbit, and we standardized on the four-piece stutter for that one. <laughs> uh, and then I really had no intention of ever doing another Roger Rabbit novel, and... Um, I was talking to my publisher about a, another novel that I had written called The Late Great Show, and we were looking for a way to publicize it. And I, I looked through some of my old material, and I found basically an almost complete Roger Rabbit novel that I had literally I'd just forgotten about. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk about uh, finding gold in the trunk in your attic. And so I said to the publisher, I said, you know, I've got this Roger Rabbit novel. I said, how about if we publicize The Late Great Show by maybe doing a paragraph or two on my blog every day of my of this Roger Rabbit novel. She said, you've got a complete Roger Rabbit novel? Why don't we just publish that? Wow. So um, I had to do some work on it uh, because it, it, is, it was actually written after Who Censored and Before Plugged. Oh, really? Yeah. And so it's got more of the sensibility of censored than it does of plugged, which was later. And, and the... Um, the progression of it, I wrote Who Censored Roger Rabbit to be the best novel I was able to write. And it, it really does require that a reader use his or her imagination. I used a lot of concepts that um, are just unique to writing, like uh, the tunes in Who Censored Roger Rabbit speak in word balloons because they're comic strip and comic book characters. So you don't talk to them, you read them. And if a cartoon character says something and then turns around, his word balloon turns around. And you have to then either learn to read in reverse or go around him. Um, it, when a cartoon character plays the piano, uh, notes come out of the piano. And the um, people will then take those notes and cut them up into eight by ten sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. <laughs> and if someone is shot with a tune gun, uh, produces a bang balloon. And so you can then pick up that bang balloon, which becomes brittle, and analyze it and find out the caliber of the tune gun. And if you ever find the tune gun that committed the crime, you match up the bang balloons. And, you know, and, and that's, 
that's a literary convention. In a literary convention, you can't do that in a movie. Uh, they tried, but you, you can't do that in a movie. Um, when the movie came out, and uh, I was I was asked to write a sequel novel, hmm. um, I I realized that probably thirty two people had read the original novel, and of those thirty two people, most of them were my relatives. You know, my my mother and my sixteen aunts, and Roy and, Disney, of course, and, and Roy Disney, yeah. of course, yeah, <laughs> one of the best of the thirty two, and, and millions of people had seen the movie. So to the people who knew Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit was the movie Roger Rabbit and not my book Roger Rabbit. So I I didn't change the conventions and I didn't make the story more cheery Disney. The story and who p- p- plugged Roger Rabbit is still dark, still brooding, and still adult. Um, but I did change the characters a little bit mm-hmm. to make them more acceptable to, to what people knew they were. For instance, now they're movie characters, not comic book characters, and they do talk. Although they choose not to, they just still use their word balloons. Um, who whacked Roger Rabbit because it was written after Who Censored is still the original dark, brooding, the original characters and all the original sensibilities. And if I had to rank them, I would say Who Censored Roger Rabbit is probably the finest finest book I've ever written. Maybe the finest book anybody's ever written in the whole history of the world, Shakespeare included. But uh, You know, you're not far off. I would say that, man. Well, all right. Uh, we should have literature classes on uh, Gary Wolf. Um, and and I think uh, I think that Whacked is, is a close second to that. I think it's almost as good as Who Censored, and I think Plugged is good, but I think the other two are really exceptional. Where did the idea of the Gary Cooper working with uh, Roger Rabbit come together from? Uh, I've always been a Gary Cooper fan. I've always liked Gary Cooper. And uh, I wanted to put some movie star in. Clark Gable is in who plugged Roger Rabbit, in fact, has an affair with Jessica. Don't tell Roger that. (laughs) Uh, Or Baby Herman, who also has his uh, things in the closet. Um, And I, I just always like to use real people in my in my novels when I can, especially you know, I think it helps readers to kind of overcome the um, it, to, to get that bridge of faith to to see cartoon characters in a real world. If Gary Cooper, who is a real person, is interacting with tunes who yeah. are not real tunes, and Eddie Valiant seems a lot like he reminds me a lot of um, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe character. Oh, of course, yeah. Was he? In, I'm sure that was a huge inspiration. Or? Well, I'll tell you. Um, yeah. My mother, who was a very wise woman, um, my father ran the pool hall in a little town called Earlville, Illinois, 1,400 people, farm town. And um, my mother worked in the school cafeteria. The, my mother had an eighth grade education because of the depression. She had to go to work. Uh, so she got to the eighth grade, my father, third grade and had to go to work. And so my mother told me, if you want to get out of Earlville and you don't want to wind up running your father's pool hall, the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read. Mm. That's what's going to get you out of this farm town and get you into better things. And great advice. But wise woman that she was, she never put any restrictions on what I could read. So I read comic books, yeah. <laughs> mostly comic books. And, and uh, then I graduated to 
what my father read. And my father, you know, I mean, he was not a big reader, but what he read were what in those days were called true crime magazines. And I don't know if there's any equivalent today. There probably is. I don't know. But these magazines were published in the 30s, 40s, in the, maybe in the early 50s. And they showed, they were, they were stories about true crimes. And they showed actual pictures of the crime scenes. Oh, gosh. And most of them were murders. Oh. And so you would be reading these things, and they were horribly graphic, you know, photographs of, of murders. And... You know, again, my dad read them, and they were around the house, and I read them, and my mother never said, don't read that, that's trash, that's going to rot your mind. Well, luckily, I graduated from there to uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, Raymond Chandler, uh, Mickey Spillane, mm. um, all, of the, all of the really great hard-boiled crime novelists. And in fact, my two great loves were comics, cartoons, and, uh, and comic strips and noir writers. And, w and when it came time to write my fourth novel for Doubleday, I wanted to find some concept that I could use to incorporate those two things, mm. you know, uh, comic books, comic strips, and a noir mystery. Uh, you know, what do you do? Well, it's not as easy as it sounds, <laughs> all right? And... Um, I was I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one day, and um, it was purely for research. I told my wife purely for research. I'm sitting here. I'll have all to morning. borrow that. <laughs> I'm just sitting here all day watching Saturday morning cartoons, <laughs> and I became fascinated not by the cartoons, which were pretty simplistic and not very well done, but by the commercials, because I, I saw cartoon characters like the Tricks Rabbit and Captain Crunch, Snap Crackle and Pop, uh, and Tony the Tiger. And cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. Mm. And I, I thought to myself, you know, what would happen if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? Yeah. And that really happened. What kind yeah. of what world would that be? So I spent a year researching the conventions of comic strips, cartoons, to see what kinds of things those characters did that were different from what real people did. And... um you know, I came up with the things like the word balloons and the, and the you know, bang balloons and about a million other things. What happens if a if a tune goes into a human bar and takes a drink? I mean, what, yeah. is that is, is he even permitted to go into a human bar and take a drink? And uh, you know, what there are must if there are human bars, there must be tune bars. And what do they serve in a tune bar? Well, they serve tune shine. And you know, what happens if a human drinks tune shine? And all these things I, I figured out in my head. And then, of course, I layered in Eddie Valiant as the prototypical private eye. He is he is every hard-boiled private eye that ever walked the main streets of L.A. And, um, I, I brought in a mystery that could only have occurred in Toontown mm -hmm. and uh, wrote the novel. That's amazing, man. Yeah. What I'm so impressed by that book is how it stands out on its own and how in order to, for you to have the reader suspend his or her disbelief about cartoons existing in the real world, you had to have such a fluency with the noir genre. And that is what I love about that because yeah. it's very believable. Eddie's struggles and his alcoholism and everything. And I've been told that before, that I seem to know a lot more about drunken private detectives <laughs> that is probably healthy for... Uh, any human being, but uh, 
I, I, I love the genre. I love noir mysteries, and I they, there's a convention to them, and I try to follow that convention in uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit. I mean, uh, Eddie Valiant is is hard boiled, uh, but he's basically a knight in shining armor, and he mm-hmm. he he knows that there's a problem, and he he doesn't deviate until he finds a solution to that problem. And the MacGuffin is kind of the way that Roger needs in both the movie and your book, he needs to learn something from Eddie and Eddie needs to learn something from him. Yeah. I, I always, I always looked at Roger and Eddie as uh, one person split down the middle. Uh, Roger is all fun and good times and, uh, and jokes. And Eddie is all serious and brass knuckles and uh, uh, my way or the highway. Yeah. And, they're they're totally separate, but together they make one good person. Oh, that's amazing! What a great that's like an incredible mm-hmm. insight. Mm-hmm. And they it they're fated to meet each other, yeah. kind of like noir mm-hmm. was yeah. fated to meet the cartoon form. Yeah, in your, exactly. In your world, yeah, exactly. I also notice in in your book you have um, Eddie was in the was in the army, right? Or he's in the air force. That's his backstory. I actually can't remember. It might have been the Marines. I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, I wrote, I wrote those. I've, I've written a lot of books, and people ask me details, specific yeah. details about things, and I can't always remember like what Eddie's exact background was. And uh, in fact, to me. Whatever it was at the time, it was, and if he was in the ar- army in who censored, I don't mind at all making him a marine and who whacked or an air yeah. force sergeant in who p- p- plugged. I mean, I am the uh, I am the almighty high potentate of Toontown, <laughs> and whatever I say goes. Uh, and I, I I play fast and loose with a lot of relationships. Um, you know, I don't think it's given anything away that uh, in the first novel, uh, Roger dies. In the first novel, he dies very early. And the rabbit that takes his place is a doppelganger, which he mentally creates as a stunt double. Uh, and Who has it, a finite time period. Who has a finite time yeah. period before he also disappears, uh, which was a convention I came up with for a Toontown novel, which, you know, obviously can't exist in real life. Um and I had to find a way in Plugged to bring him back uh, because I, I start in Plugged with him back. And he's, he's, just, he's just back. And I had to find a way to bring him back, which I did. I think it's on page, I don't know, 167 if you want to look at it. Don't, don't look there exactly, but it's somewhere <laughs> around there. And if yeah. you look, you can find how I brought him back. Um, and uh, in the end of Plugged, uh, Jessica has a baby. Um, and then in Whacked, which is the third novel, uh, no baby anymore. So, I, you know, I, I kind of play fast and loose with the rules of Toontown and it depends on what story I want to tell and what I want to do to have fun because yeah. I basically write these books to amuse myself and I'm just extremely fortunate that other people seem to find what amuses me amuses them too. And the fact that the characters can fill different roles in each book, right? Exactly. Is would you say that that who censored is that kind of contemporary? The world, the movie. I remember the movie takes place in like forty seven, 
Is the first book more contemporary in your the, mind? Or? The, uh, the first book was in, in a Never Never Land. Okay. There was no time. Oh, it wow. Was not, it was not 30s, 40s, 50s. It was a Never Never Land time um, because the movie was set in 47. Uh, Plugged was set in 48. I can't remember, whatever. Okay. And Whacked was set uh, in the same time, which was fine with me because I like... I like playing with historical concepts. Yeah. I, I like Gary Cooper. I, I find it I find that one of the problems that I run into as I age, uh, and I, I age like uh, slowly. I age like uh, one year every ten. Right. You're in very good shape, by the way. <laughs> for for a guy 103. <laughs> um, so you know, I find that as I age, that the concepts that I enjoy, that I grew up with. That that younger people don't understand, don't know about. I, I, there are people who are going to read this book who have no idea who Gary Cooper is. They've never seen High Noon. A lot of people that now read my books have never seen a black and white movie. Mm. And I, I've I've wondered whether I should change my writing style to make the stuff I write more contemporary. And uh, and I decided, nah, hell with it. <laughs> let, let them go, let them get Google and figure it out. Yeah. Um, I um, I find that I use a lot of words that people don't really understand. Not not like long, complicated words, but like words that were uh, words that were used in the '30s and '40s that people just don't know today. Uh, but to me, you know, I grew up with those words. It gives to me. It gives your books in this air of authenticity, of of timelessness, mm-hmm. and I think like yeah, I, I will admit that some words I I googled, you know, rereading mm-hmm. them, but but a lot of them I found out I knew, and I was like, oh, that's a very clever use of vocabulary, you know, yeah. and and it's just your world you've you've absorbed this fluency of it that allows it to exist. Yeah, I I, I enjoy I enjoy playing with language. Uh, I enjoy playing with uh, the similes from um, from private eye novels, and I enjoy playing with storylines and, and, and layering storylines so that nobody really knows what's happening until the absolute very end. And the mystery, if we're going to talk about the plots, and hopefully people have read them, please pause this <laughs> if you don't want it spoiled or skip ahead 15 <laughs> seconds. The twist in Who Censored Where, the genie and the lamp, and the connections with Alice in Wonderland and all that like mythology and stuff. It's really, it's a really creative twist. Where did you think of like the, the genie twist, the Middle Eastern thing? Wow. Uh, yeah. Again, I, I wrote that novel in, well, between 1978 and 1980. And hard to tell. I mean, yeah. I, I, I can't, I don't keep notes of, of what I write. Uh, I probably was reading some Middle Eastern uh, uh, Aladdin uh, book at the time and said, wow, that's, you know, that's clever. Uh, I, I needed some kind of a, as you say, a MacGuffin, something <laughs> to get the, get the plot going. And uh, I like the idea of the teapot, everybody looking for the teapot, but when they find the teapot, it's not really the teapot that they want. It's what's inside the teapot that they want. Yeah. Um, so I, I, 
I can't tell you where that came from. And I, I can't tell you probably where 90% of the stuff I write came from. Seriously, the way I know that I have finished my book, you know, I, writers, and I've, I found this uh, a lot of creative people, I, I could keep working on a book forever. Because right? mm. it's, it's just fun for me to write it. I just love writing it. And it's just more fun writing it. And uh, I would never, I would never quit. I would just keep writing it forever. Uh, and the way I write, I will write 100 pages. And look at that 100 pages and it's absolute garbage. It's just garbage. But maybe there's a half a page in there that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I'll throw away everything, take that half a page, and then expand that to 100 pages. And maybe there's two pages in there that's good. I throw the rest of it away. And I used to do it by writing it out longhand on yellow light paper and then cutting and pasting. Wow. Cutting and pasting. And so for me, computers came along. I thought, wow, this is like a digital thing, what I've always done anyway. And I cut and paste. And sometimes I would have sheets of paper that were two feet long. And they, they would have all my cutting pastes. And sometimes I would have them that were like six inches long. And they would all be stapled together. And then I have to I'd go through and retype it and then do it all over again. And the way I knew that a book was finished, I would read it. And I would say, that's too good. I, I could not have written that. I'm not capable of ah. writing that. The writing is, is more than I am capable of doing. And that's when I know it's done. Because I, I've, I've surpassed my own expectations. And I will still look at Roger Rabbit today and I'll read it and I'll say, wow, guy's a genius. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how he ever did that. But, and, you know, I, yeah. I always say this to, to beginning writers. Don't get psyched out by other writers. Because I found that a lot of other writers are not really supportive of young guys because they see every young guy as competition. Yeah. And sometimes you'll talk to a writer, talk to some very famous writers, and I'll say, hey, you know, how many words do you write? And Kyle will say, oh, 6,000 every day. I'll say, 6,000 every day? Yeah, every, and it's all good. You know, it's all good. And I'm thinking, you know, 6,000 a day. Some days I'm happy if I can just find the right word. One, one word. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, you know, don't don't be put off by that because you're right at your own speed and uh, you do what you can. Gary, that's a great, that's a great message because a lot of this podcast is about like people who, creative people who are adaptable and who are successful. And one of the interesting things learning about your story is how many people passed on who oh. censored? Okay. So. Uh, yeah, that's cr crazy. So when I started writing novels, I, I, I sold, I, I sold. I don't know, a bunch of short stories. I, I've actually collect, collected a lot of my short stories in a, a book called The Road to Toontown, which yeah. has a lot of my short stories in it. Uh, and I never had a reject, never. And uh, I wrote my first novel, Doubleday bought it, never never had a reject, gave me a contract for a second novel. Is that Killer Bowl? Uh, it was Killer Bowl, yeah. which is which, which is a, a digression. Uh -huh. Killer Bowl is hard science fiction, and it's about a... Uh, Written in 1976, I think. and it is uh, about a world in the future. I said it actually in 2011 and 2012. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. awesome. And it it talks about a world where uh, football is played on the streets instead of in a stadium, and it's a 24-hour sport and it's played with weapons. 
including knives and guns. And it's a, it's a lethal sport. And you can say that I kind of predicted the MMA, mm. mixed martial arts. Uh, in that novel, I predicted the cell phone. I predicted the internet, the gas crisis, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it, it is still my most famous science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. When I go to a science fiction conference, I'm not known as the guy who wrote Roger Rabbit. I'm known as the guy who wrote Killer Bowl. And um, actually right now they're doing a graphic novel of it, graphic novel adaptation. And a company in England is doing, who makes lead, lead soldier miniatures, is doing a table game based on Killer Bowl, little lead soldier. Miniatures. That's amazing. So anyway, I, I wrote Killer Bowl, uh, yeah. my first novel. They gave me a contract for a second novel. I wrote, uh, I wrote my second novel. Um, Generation removed. Generation removed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, then I wrote my. Uh, they, they gave me a contract for a third mo- a novel, which was which was the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection of yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget. Seventy nine. So, yeah. Right? Seventy nine. Yeah. So um, they gave me a contract for a fourth novel, and I wanted to do something that you know had never been done before. I wanted to push the envelope, so I came up with the concept for Roger Rabbit. And I spent uh, a year writing it. I said it's a double day, and I said, here's here's my fourth novel. And uh, they rejected it. Gosh. First reject I'd ever had, it was Roger Rabbit. And They must have been so embarrassed when it was such a hit. I hope so. <laughs> uh, so... I, I called my editor, Sharon, and I Sharon, why did you reject this? And she said, well, uh, she said, it's so unusual. I loved it. She said, first of all, I loved it. It was funny. It was creative. Never read anything like this before, but it was so different that I had to send it to the marketing department, and they were the ones who rejected it. So I called the head of the marketing department. I said, hey, Chuck, you know, why did you reject my novel? Best thing I've ever written. I'll never write anything that good. And he said, yeah, I agree. You know, it's really great. But, you know, there's no category for it on the bookstore shelves. It's not a, an adult novel. It's not a children's novel. It's not a traditional mystery novel. Right. Uh, it's not a, It's not really a fantasy. Uh, it's not a fairy tale. I, there's no category for it. I can't sell it. And I said, okay, let me ask you. What would you do if somebody gave you today Gulliver's Travels, Wizard of Oz, <laughs> Or Alice in Wonderland. What would you do with those? And he thought for a minute. He says, "I couldn't sell those either." <laughs> so I said, oh, "Okay, so sad. yeah, really." <laughs> yeah. So I went back to my agent, who was—I mean, think about this for a minute. I mean, four novels that he's collected his fifteen percent, and he really did nothing uh, except send it to Doubleday. And I said, "Bill, you know, I—I if—if I can't sell this novel." I don't want to be a writer anymore because this is what I want to do. And um, they said, oh, don't worry. We'll sell it. We'll sell it. So he started sending it out to different publishers. And um, at times he would send it out to different editors at the same publisher. Hmm. Um, and along the way, it acquired uh, 110 rejects. God. Rejected 110 times. Uh, I used to go to the mailbox. We didn't have email in those days. I used to go to the mailbox and I, I, my wife started calling on the daily disappointments because oh, I would go Eric. to the mailbox and some days there would be five rejects, you know, on Roger Rabbit. Oh, only five rejects today. A good day. You know, he is. <laughs> um, and then finally, after 110 rejects, it got to a, a woman named Rebecca St. Martin 
Rebecca Martin at St. Martin's Press. Yeah. No relation to Rebecca Martin and St. Martin's Press, except that she worked there as an editor. And it got to her desk, and she loved it. Like, all the editors loved it. It was always the marketing department. And Rebecca had just published a major bestseller for St. Martin's Press. A major bestseller. And so the president of St. Martin's gave her a vanity project. He said, all right, the next book you, you edit, you can edit any book you want. Just pick a book and, you know, you can edit it. And so my book came across her desk wow. just at that time. Yeah, lucky for me. And so <laughs> she she read it, said, wow, this is it. So she took it to the president of St. Martin's and said, here's the book I want to edit. And he said, all right, let me take a look at it. So he took a look at it that night, came back to her the next day and said, well, I told you you could, you could publish any book you wanted but you can't publish this because oh, no. I can't sell it. <laughs> and Rebecca, bless her heart, stood up to the plate and said, either publish it or I quit. Wow. So they published it, albeit in very, very small quantities. It's, uh, they published it in, I think, 5,000 copies of original hardback. I'm on the cover. Yeah. Uh, and I think the cover price of it was four ninety five or something like that. And I wish, in retrospect, I wish if I had a time machine, I would go back and buy them all. Because if you look on eBay now, I think they're up around three fifty or four hundred dollars a piece. Oh my god! For those originals. Yeah. And that's the one where, where he's a big brown bunny, right? He's a big brown bunny. Yeah. And um, in the uh, yeah in the uh, in the original, he was a brown rabbit. Yeah. Uh, um, they changed him to a white rabbit because they felt he would show up better on screen and be a little easier to animate. But he was a brown rabbit, and I went to a toy company, uh, Kamar Industries, and I asked them if they would make me a, a rabbit that was, you know, as I saw Roger Rabbit, and yeah. they did. And the picture on the cover of that book, which is me uh, smoking a cigarette in a trench coat and a hat uh, and uh, facing the camera, and the rabbit with his back to the camera, with his, with his ear, if you look at it, his ears in the Playboy Bunny posture <laughs> and he's wearing a trench coat yeah um that was intended to be the author's photo and it was a black and white photo but when st martin saw it so rebecca saw it she said oh that's too good for the author's photo and they made it into the cover oh and the hardest wow. part of the whole photo shoot was he had to use a real cigarette well, there was no photoshop at those days right he's a real cigarette so that the smoke would be coming up and I don't smoke and it <laughs> kept making me cough and hack. Um, but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was original. I remember the story before it came out, you got the call from Roy Disney, right? Yeah, yeah. The uh, I finished it in 1980 and it actually came out in 1981. Uh, there was a one year lag between when, when they bought it and when it came out. And um, in that, in that period, I get this call one day, and a guy on the phone says, this is Gary K. Wolf. Yeah, it is. Well, this is Roy Disney. And yeah, right, Roy Disney. <laughs> one of my friends having me off yeah, here. Right. He said, yeah, no, no, really, Roy Disney. And I'm wondering if you'd be interested. I just read your book, and I'd be wondering if you'd be interested in selling the rights to Disney because I'd like to make a movie of it. Wow. And of course, the book hadn't come out yet. So, yeah, right. <laughs> it was this really. And it turned out that somebody at St. Martin's uh, and I never found out who, and I, I tried uh, because I wanted to kiss her or him full on the lips, uh, but somebody at, at St. Martin's had sent a manuscript copy of the book 
to Disney. Yeah. And it made its way up to Roy Disney, and Roy Disney said, "Wow, well, yeah, I really want to, I really want this." Disney needed Roger Rabbit back then. Um, they need him again, but yeah, uh, they needed him back. They needed him back then for a couple of reasons. Disney was in danger of becoming a second-rate movie house. They were they were no longer making blockbuster movies. They were making uh, movies that were the second half of double features. And people today don't even know what a double feature is. Mm. Um, and Disney was making movies that were the second half of a double feature. Um, they were making movies like The Black Cauldron and uh, The Black Hole. and uh, Great Mouse Detective. Great right? Mouse Detective, yeah. which disappeared down the great hole, you know, the black <laughs> hole. You know, they were making movies that really were not very good. And they needed something that was going to propel them back to the forefront. They needed something technologically and creatively excellent. And they saw Roger Rabbit as being that. They had been offered Star Wars and they turned it down. Oh, they had gosh. been offered E.T. and they turned it down. Um, so they, they needed something. Uh, the other thing they needed desperately, if you've ever been to Disneyland, you, you look around and you can see that Disney makes – a lot of money, an inordinate amount of money on things with Disney characters on it. Yeah. You know, Disney merchandise. Uh, their characters are getting stale. Uh, Mickey was was now uh, kind of the corporate spokesmouse, and you couldn't have much fun with him anymore. Uh, Donald, you could still have fun with, but you couldn't understand what he said. Right. So, <laughs> you know, what good is he? Uh, so they, they saw Roger, Baby Herman, to some extent Jessica, as new characters that they could merchandise in, in their stores. That would be a new revenue stream for them. Kind of edgier, right? And more modern. A little edgier, a yeah. little more modern. Yes, exactly right. Um, so, uh, honestly, I had written the book to be the best book that I knew how to write. Mm -hmm. I honestly did not think it was possible to make a movie of it because of all the as I say, it requires a reader to use imagination. And yeah. there were a lot of conventions that I just didn't think would translate to a movie. But I, you know, was more than happy to let Disney try because they paid me more money than I'd ever made for everything I'd ever written put together. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, I said, sure, you know, go ahead. And for a while, I, I didn't think they had the talent, the creativity. I didn't, I didn't think they could do it. And for a while, it kind of proved me right because – they tried and they tried. And in 1980, 81, 82, uh, the technology really wasn't there yet. Yeah. It hadn't arrived yet. And um, they they tried to put together scripts. They tried to put together concepts. It wasn't one of the ideas they pitched to you was having people in costumes? Okay. So the, right? that seems so, crazy. So, so they, said, they said, you know um, – we, we're not having any luck doing this as, a, as an animated live action movie. So what would you think if we did the characters, the, the Toontown characters, as uh, characters like Disneyland with people in costumes? And I, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm going to have I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica <laughs> and, and I'm going to have Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. <laughs> And Dean Jones is the rabbit, and Fred McMurray is, is Eddie Valiant. And I said, oh, you know, doesn't that compromise the the concept just a little bit? Yeah. And they said, well, yeah, you're probably right. So Cooler has prevailed, and they, they went on. And 
That's great that like they respected your opinion and your characters, you know. <laughs> well, and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I, sus- I suspect that I was not the only one who waved a, waved a red flag over that one. But, yeah. Because it, it, that was during the Howard the Duck era, too, when they had, uh, you know, a real guy as Howard the Duck and, uh, t- you know, total fiasco. So I think that probably had a lot more to do with it than me saying, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. But, um, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, things changed in uh, the mid-'80s when uh, Michael Eisner came in and, and basically Roy Disney was forced the background. Uh, and Mike Eisner brought with him Jeff Katzenberg as the head of Disney Motion Pictures and Disney Animation. Uh, and these two guys had worked together before. They worked together at 20th Century, um, and they had a good working relationship. Usually when a new team comes into a studio, they just throw out all the projects that are already under development, start all fresh again, because the ones that are under development are the ones that got the old regime in control. Sure. So, um, so they, they, th- they did that. They threw out every project they had under development, except for Roger Rabbit. Gosh. And they said, this is the movie we have to make. Yeah. We have to make it. Michael Eisner told Jeff Kessenberg, make this movie. We have to make this movie. So they did something that nobody at Disney had ever done before. They brought in a uh, an outside producer to oversee production. And that guy, of course, was a little-known guy named Steve Spielberg. And, I wonder what happened, to, whatever happened to him. <laughs> whatever happened to him. Yeah, I don't know. And yeah, Spielberg yeah. really was instrumental in helping get the Warner Brothers properties, right? Okay, so yeah. in 1981, Roy Disney went to Warner Brothers. And said, we're making a live action animated movie and I would like to have Bugs Bunny just come on screen, say, what's up, Doc? Bite a carrot and he's off. Yeah. He'll be on screen for no more than 25 seconds. What about it? And Warner Brothers looked at Roy and said, get lost. <laughs> no way is Bugs Bunny ever going to be in a Walt Disney movie. That's never going to happen. So five years later. Steve Spielberg walks into Warner Brothers and makes the identical request. Yeah. Can I have Bugs Bunny to, you know, what's up, Doc? Bite a carrot. Walk off. And he, Steven, of course. Of course. Bugs. Take Bugs. What about Porky? Want Porky? How about Wile E. Coyote and a Roadrunner? Jesus, I'm an E. Sam. Yeah. And, and Tweety Bird and Sylvester the Cat. I mean, you take them all. Take them all. Please. Please, take them all. And uh, <laughs> what they, with Bugs and Mickey, that was two different really big properties, right? And All right, well, the, the, one, the one requirement, one requirement, Bugs had a contract. Bugs had an agent. Bugs had a contract. <laughs> um, Bugs and Mickey, Warners regarded Bugs as a co-equal superstar with Mickey. They were the two superstars. So Mickey and Bugs had to be in every scene together. You could not have Mickey in a scene without books. And they had to have the exact same number of words of dialogue. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> For them to feel like they weren't being overshadowed by the right. mouse, the and great you mouse. Can, and you can go through and count them. <laughs> and that's people amazing. have. And that's the scene with the, with the parachutes. It's such a perfect way to frame them both. And it it's is. Awesome. And it, it became a problem in the early days when it was on, uh, I think, uh, video cassette because they had to do a pan scan. Oh. And they could not get them both in. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not real sure how they, uh, how they solved that, but I suspect that 
in that case, uh, Bugs's contract went uh, <laughs> went down the down the drain. And <laughs> I remember in the in the Toon Platoon script that I read, which were you involved in that story? A bit no, or? I wasn't. Yeah. Um, what did you think of it? Um, it was okay. I um, which is the prequel sequel for those of you listening. Yeah. Um, you know that was that was headed to be a movie before things kind of fell apart at Disney and uh, Jeff Katzenberg left and uh, went to work with uh, with Steve Spielberg and um, you know Spielberg controls the production rights to Roger Rabbit along with Disney and um, wasn't going to do anything to make Disney any more money when his his new partner was unhappy with Disney so Toon Platoon was originally going to going to be a movie with uh, Rob Minkoff directing uh, would have been good. I've, I've felt, and, you know, people always ask me, well, you know, how does Toon Platoon fit into the Toon, uh, the Toon mythos? What, you yeah. know, where is it? Well, it's not anywhere because it was just a spec script and it was never done and it's not, it's not gospel. It was never done, so it's, it's not it's gospel. It's not canon. It's not canon. There you go. Right, it's right. not canon. <laughs> um, I, uh, I never liked to think about uh, cartoons or even superheroes in conjunction with uh, wars or um, uh, despots or, or, you know, really evil, evil people like Hitler. Because, you know, if Superman was real, he'd go over Germany and kick the crap out of Hitler and it'd all be over. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I don't really like mixing cartoons who were such a fan of fanciful creation with something so horrible and you were in vietnam in, in the air force right yeah it was an air commando yeah. yeah so you must i totally respect where you're coming from yeah yeah, yeah. And, you know i keeping them in toontown and having them fight uh, toontown crime like i did in uh, who whacked roger rabbit mm. uh willie prosciutto the uh the pig king of toontown yeah uh, it's fine. Which it's, is a great name, by the way. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> actually, actually, uh, um, one of my best friends is William Prisci- William uh, Pizzuto, <laughs> and I named it after him. Uh, don't tell him that. Uh, he's going to bring home the bacon. Uh, anyway, I don't mind having tunes go up against other tunes, and like, and, and in in the movie, they went up against Judge Doom, who turned out to be a tune, but yeah, uh, you know, an evil, evil guy but not a world-threatening evil dictator. I, I don't want Toons having to fight world-threatening evil dictators and world conflicts. It just doesn't make sense to me. And you had that post today on Facebook where you had the posters, the Roger Rabbit posters, and there's that Herman Sherman's one. Yeah. Which I wonder what you thought about that, Roger is the despot. Oh, I think, uh, <laughs> actually, I think that's pretty hilarious yeah. because uh, that's a direct take on... Uh, Donald Duck in Der Fuhrer's Face mm. from 1943, uh, where Donald Duck has this dream about Hitler, basically. It was a wartime propaganda mm-hmm. cartoon. And Donald becomes Hitler. And it was the first and only time that any major Disney cartoon character ever uh, played a you know world despot. Uh, and they kind of did that as a, as a riff on... 
you know, Durfer's face. I, I thought it was hilarious. And it was that would have been a pro- Roger Rabbit propaganda cartoon from yeah, the war. Yeah. Which is yeah, like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that Spielberg maybe felt s- similar to you, that having a World War II tune story was after, inappropriate, right? After he did Schindler's List, and, and I, I can't speak for Stephen. I mean, sure. He, um, but after he did Schindler's List, uh, he vowed he would never again use Nazis for entertainment the way he did in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Um, so I, that may well have figured into it. I don't know. Yeah. What did you think of the twist with Bugs as Roger's dad at the end? Oh, I love that. Yeah. I, ca- I actually came up with that. I, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I actually came up with that. <laughs> I thought that was just hilarious that, you know, Bugs would be, you know, I'm a stinker, ain't I? <laughs> and um, that he, and he's, the other thing I remember in the movie is that Thumper is his uncle, right? Mm-hmm. From Bambi. Yeah. So he's this from this long lineage of Hollywood rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do, if you read my books, you will find that I do a lot of things where I will bring in a whole bunch of Roger, of, of rabbit characters. Yeah. And, and kind of interrelate them and show how they, uh, how they, how they interrelate. And in uh, Plugged, I brought in a whole bunch of Eddie's relatives too. And, you know, his, his, uh, Sister Hetty and brother Teddy and yeah, you know, uh, Freddie, you know, all of <laughs> the whole universe. It's all it's it's definitely like when I read them all and see the movie, I I just visualize it all as making sense. This world is real, and I like what, at the beginning of the interview how you said that it kind of feels like it flows through you, like you are the mayor and creator of Toontown and Grand High Potentate. I think it was my <laughs> official title, but yeah, uh, uh, and it it doesn't have to have. Um, a consistency, right? As long as it has an internal logic, yeah. And the internal logic is there. The internal logic flows from the book to the movie to the second book to the third book. It's 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 logical. Um, what I try to do in all my books, and what they what they tried and succeeded in doing in the movie, was to create a world that was totally believable. There was nothing in, there's nothing in any of my books that somebody's going to stop and say, whoa, you know, that could never happen. Uh, and, and you could say, well, it's about Toontown. Anything can happen. But anything can't happen. Yeah. Anything can't happen. It has its, it has its rules, its logical rules. The movie had its logical rules. Uh, and all my books has its logical rules. They only broke that one time in the movie. Oh, where? Well, I'm dying well, to know. Well, <laughs> uh, Bob Zemeckis got this idea that when Eddie Valiant is in the elevator with Droopy and the elevator falls, that Bob Hoskins, Eddie Valiant, should be squashed flat on the floor. Yeah. Now, that's complete and utter disregard of the the major premise of the movie. It cannot happen to a human being. But Bob Zemeckis thought it was really funny and everybody said, oh, well, breaks the rules. I don't care. Yeah. So it got done. That, that his concept was the world of Toontown would affect the physics of a human, but that's, that's, that's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. It's impossible. No, humans are humans and tunes are tunes and that would never happen. It was funny. Yeah. But it's, and I don't think anybody ever really caught it. Just like nobody caught the fact that Jessica, uh, has one voice for singing. Amy Irving did her singing voice and, Kathleen Turner did her speaking voice, and um, nobody really caught that. 
and Kathleen Turner wasn't credited initially, right? Because they didn't know if it was going to be a hit. Uh, Kathleen, it was it was Kathleen's choice. Yeah. Um, she she recorded the voices early on, the voice of Jessica, and she was pregnant when she was supposed to sing, and whether she really can't sing or whether she just didn't have breath control, I don't know, but she couldn't sing. So uh, Stephen, who was there with Amy Irving, his wife at the time, said, Amy, you know, hey, you sang in Yentl, why don't you give it a whack? And everybody's saying, oh, Stephen, you know, nobody's going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she's singing and one voice when she's when she's speaking. She's, yeah. Oh, you know, nobody, will, nobody will catch it. So Amy sang the song, and Kathleen did the speaking voices, the speaking voice. And if you look at the credits, you'll see Amy Irving credited as singing voice of Jessica. Ah. Uh, and Kathleen, I mean, nobody knew if this, if this was going to be, nobody even knew if this was going to be a kid's movie or an adult movie. Yeah. Nobody knew when, when they were making this movie. And uh, so Kathleen did not want to be associated with another, and I keep going back to Howard the Duck. Yeah. Everybody said, oh, is this going to be another Howard the Duck? She didn't want to be associated with that. So she did what James Earl Jones did with Star Wars and Darth Vader. Um, he was the voice of Darth Vader, but he did not take credit for it mm. because nobody knew if Star Wars was going to be any good either. Wow. And then when Star Wars was a big hit, ooh, wow, you know, James Earl Jones comes out, the mystery man who did the voice of Darth Vader. And, of course, the same thing happened to uh, Kathleen Turner. The movie's a big hit, and she came out as the voice. And you sat next to her at the premiere, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the movie premiered at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And uh, they did it there so that I wouldn't have to go to L.A., right? <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I, was up in the, I was up in the first balcony with the VIPs. And I had, I had actually never seen the whole movie all the way through. Because wow. they were still working on it up until a couple of days before they actually made the prints and we're going to show it. And I just never seen it all the way through. So I was going to see my own movie all the way through. I had never seen my credit because the credits, I'd just never seen them. Yeah. So I was going to see my own movie. I'm going to see my credit on screen first time ever. And I, I was sitting up on the balcony and Kathleen Turner was on one side and Amy Irving was on the other side. <laughs> yes. The two most beautiful women in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> and then life got better because Kathleen leaned over and she put her hand on my leg and she said, Gary, are you excited? <laughs> and I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> That's amazing, man. You'd been on the set though, right? When you're shooting? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I have. Um, I, um, I'm easily bored. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't have a high threshold for repetition. And movie making is really not my thing mm. uh, because it is, it's just too repetitious for me. Yeah. And there's too much downtime. And um, I, uh, like, for instance, uh, Chris Lloyd, great guy, uh, Reverend Jim from Taxi. I, yeah. <laughs> and that's him. And when he was doing that, that scene where he snapped the black glove on his hand prior to picking up the little red shoe. Uh, These aren't kid gloves, Mr. Valiant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He, he he could not get it right. He, he kept snapping it up and 
and it, only the middle finger would be up and, uh, you know, or only the two end fingers, you know, like hang 10. And he just could not get it right. And they kept doing it over and over and over and over and over. And I, 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 I can't, that's too boring for me. Yeah. So, uh, I was happy to go to London. Uh, I was happy to, uh, um, you know, go to the film set, uh, L Street Studios, great time. Uh, hanging around with Bob Hoskins, um, I, w- I was more than happy to go to Lucas to the ranch, out to the mm-hmm. ranch when they were doing that stuff. And uh, Lucasfilm, love that, but I, you know, I, I I just didn't want to be there day in day out. I, I didn't have anything to contribute, and um, just wasn't something that I like like to do. So seeing the magic of it all together must have been mind-blowing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. and yeah. Oh, you know, one of the things I always worried about, um, when I see a movie being made, is that going to ruin the movie for me when I see it completed? Mm. And uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, you know, it's hard, like, uh, it's hard when, when, they're do- when, when I see the scene with the red shoe. Because I can visualize myself standing there just on the other side of the camera. And I, I can visualize all the people that were standing there next yeah. to me. And, um, and that kind of takes me out of it. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 I don't think, um, I don't think I'm the kind of guy that would like to hang around movie sets. I, you know, I'm much, much more comfortable. And I'm, I'm kind of a closeted guy anyway i like being by myself and doing my doing my work and sitting in my office and you know being by myself you've got that internal world yeah that I, drives do, I do you. you know and it's more it, I, frankly it's more interesting than what's going on out here right now yeah i know. know i know i feel you man um i can i i, I want to end with two more questions if that's cool Two two hundred. I don't care. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. I got I got nothing to do. You know, I, I appreciate I this. Nothing man. to do. I, I want to just I just want to say how this is like awesome to talk to you, and you're so humble, and it's so cool to hear these stories. Yeah, well, I'll tell you that. Just a digression. You can edit yeah. this out if you want to, but uh, you know, a little homage to a good friend of mine that just passed away, Stan Lee. Um, yeah, I met him when I was uh, when I was going back and forth to Hollywood. They they introduced me to Stan Lee because. Well, they they just introduced me to Stanley, and he was the nicest guy. He invited me to come to his office. I used to go to his office when I was in LA and hang out. And he had the most incredible uh, bunch of artifacts from from all of his movies. That he was just so nice and so um, so humble and so helpful. Mm. And he was, he was just like a mentor to me. Um, and we talked about cartoons and we talked about comic strips and comic books and mostly we just talked about life and i i always said you know that that is what a a a cartoon comic movie celebrity should be should be a guy who's accessible and who's willing to share his knowledge and i'm happy to do that thank you gary i appreciate that man and my condolences i know you you guys were yeah we were close and i I actually we i just lost uh, the week before i lost jock muller who was uh one of the animators on roger rabbit and was actually the animator who did the scene of roger and jessica hanging from the rope uh which is the only cell that i did i i mean i have others but that's the only one i hang in my 
in my office. And uh, he did that scene. And then he later did the cover for my Who Whacked Roger Rabbit book. Yeah. And did all the character designs for the characters in there. You know, two of my good buddies gone in two days, in two weeks. Yeah, man. How are you doing? Uh, uh, you mean, am, I mean, am I am I going to be the third? No, no, no. I mean, I'm <laughs> they sorry. come in threes. You know, like I know that's that's like, yeah, that's must, you must be feeling kind of sad. I do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, you get to you get to be a certain age, and you see Jack, especially because he was only sixty two. Uh, Stanley, you know, ninety five. He had a good life, um, but now I'm doing okay. I, uh, you got to you got to kind of power through it. You know. Um, fly on. Yeah. Is writing helpful or doing your creative work? Yeah, it does. You know, for me, writing takes me out of everything. I am, uh, when I, when I'm really into my writing, I have, I have no worries. I have, I have no bills to pay. I have nowhere to go. I have nothing to do except sit there and, uh, write what I want. Be in the flow of it, right? Be in the flow of it. Yeah. Create worlds that are of my own invention. (laughs) And do whatever I want, and just have fun. And I'm I'm working on a new one right now, uh, called Here Today, Here Tomorrow, that is as unusual in its own way as Roger Abbott was. Um, totally different premise, but as unusual in its own way. And I I'm, I'm caving in a little bit on this one because it's set in current day. Okay. Wow. Uh, so I don't have to worry about people not knowing who Gary Cooper is. Um, and I'm able to use cell phones and I'm able to use uh, you know, tablet computers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but still, you know, pretty interesting. What's the, what's the story or do you care to keep it secret? I, I got to keep a secret. Okay. I, 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 and it's, it's not that I figure you're going to go out and write the same novel, <laughs> but um, it's it's really kind of my one superstition. I don't like talking about these things Yeah. Uh, until actually they're done. And when I wrote Roger Rabbit, when I came up with the idea of cartoons in a real world, you know, what would it be like if you had cartoons living in a real world? The minute I came up with that idea, I said, you know, this is so obvious, so obvious that somebody else is going to write it first. Mm. I mean, how can you not, how can you not think of this? This is too obvious. And so the, the year, year and a half I took writing it, I was in constant fear that somebody else would publish a novel for me in which cartoon characters live in a real world yeah luckily nobody did and no one really has or has since yeah <laughs> what's cool about the movie is there's some really distinctive some of the most famous lines from the movie are in who censored like herman's uh i've got a 50 year old was well, it i got a 50 year old less than a three-year-old dinky <laughs> and they just one of, one of my favorites <laughs> it's like shows so much into his character his his creepiness but also his like existential angst yeah and like what what baby herman is such a amazing timeless character like that's like were there any inspirations for that or yeah there were. yeah uh, actually uh um i, I of, of all of them well roger roger was intended to be the kind of disney character if disney had a had a bugs bunny kind of rabbit and i had no intention i had no intention of ever selling that to disney i mean that was mm. just that was just the way I saw that character. He was a Disney kind of rabbit, like Bugs Bunny, sort of kind of wild and crazy guy. Uh, Jessica was Red Hot Riding Hood, the old Tex yeah. Avery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the old Tex Avery character. 
Uh, and if you look at uh, Wild and Wolfie or Red Hot Riding Hood, the cartoons, you'll see that she does a dance in those cartoons that are almost identical to the dance she does in Ooh, Ooh, Frame Roger. Oh, wow. But I, I always thought that my, the, my best effort, the best character that I ever designed, ever developed was Baby Herman. Uh, I based him on a number of grown-up baby characters that existed in cartoons and comic books back in the 30s and 40s. Baby Huey and there were a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Some of them were big. Some of them were actual babies. Uh, Sweet Pea, the Popeye, oh, right. Popeye baby. They were, who had the hair. Who had the similar. hair thing. Yeah. And they, they were, they were, you know, kind of grown-up babies. And I said, I need a grown-up baby. So I came up with Baby Herman. And I think he's my most successful character because when I when I wrote the book and sent the book to my agent to to read it before I sent it off to Doubleday, yeah, he came back and said, "Oh, he said you can't use this baby Herman character." And I said, "Why?" He says, "Well, that's not your character." <laughs> so he says, "Well, what? I've seen this character before. You know, this is somebody else's character." No, I no, I did it. I did it. It's the mark of a great character. The mark of a great character. Yeah. Everybody thinks I stole it. <laughs> So he he's an adult who plays a baby. Is he a, like a, a little person in your eyes, or he's just a baby cartoon? Uh, is it hard know, to know? Again, again, logic in Toontown is a slippery slope. But yeah, I always saw him as just a baby who never who uh, like uh, uh, what's his name ben, ben, Benjamin Britton. Uh, oh right, right, uh, Benjamin the, Button. Ben, whatever, what? Button the the Brad Pitt movie. Yeah, yeah, where the guy ages in reverse. And oh and, right, you know. He, he starts out as full grown and winds up as a baby. I can't remember, but I just see baby Herman as somebody who is a baby and stays a baby forever, even though he gets older. And he, in the book, he's, he's also an animation star, right? He has a cartoon mm -hmm. and the idea of Roger as his caretaker and his nurse who gets into trouble, that dynamic is very original. I can't think of any precedent where there's like an animal babysitter for a, baby right yeah what inspired that or is it hard to remember uh i just thought it was funny yeah <laughs> and, and, and you know a lot of the stuff um a lot of the stuff just kind of comes to me yeah and I, I, there's no real there's no real logical explanation for why i came up with i, I mean i didn't give it a lot of thought right so wow it'd be funny if <laughs> roger rabbit a rabbit was babysitting a baby <laughs> i mean i think that'd be kind of funny and and the baby's always outsmarting him. And the baby's always outsmarting him. Yeah, you know, the baby's always getting into trouble. It's it's classic. I mean, it's it's nineteen thirties forties cartoon classic. And, and the narrow escape and the the fact that Roger's an interesting character because he is always trying to do the right thing, right? Like, but he also he can't help himself. He's yeah. like the ADD child in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He he tries to do what's right, but fails and and not because he he's incapable of it he just gets so caught up in what he's doing that he can't he's like an add child exactly. yeah what part of him is you are you do you feel do you see yourself in oh, roger yeah. oh yeah see I, <laughs> I i i always thought that roger and, and eddie were autobiographical i see i see them as being me yeah uh, and i have both aspects i have roger's fun loving kind of sensibility and I sometimes go off on tangents and do stuff that gets me into a lot of trouble just because I don't think it through. 
but then I also have the other side, which is very serious and you know, very, uh, uh, very hard knuckles. Um, luckily, I think as, as I've gotten older, I think I've become more Roger and less Eddie. Interesting. Thank goodness. But I remember hearing a story that you bought the first Roger Rabbit item you bought was the lunchbox, right? Yeah, I, 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 I vowed that. You know, when it when the movie came out and when they told me, oh, there's going to be merchandise. Yeah. I, I told my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to buy the first Roger Rabbit piece of merchandise I see. Whatever it is, I'm going to buy it. Yeah. And so we went to uh, the premiere, Radio City. Uh, I can't remember what day it was. And then the next day, uh, we were going to go over to uh, Macy's because they had merchandise. Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, it was my first stop. That was my second stop. I would buy the movie theater first and the line was around the block. Oh man. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so we went to Macy's and I figured, well, you know, there'll be a counter with Roger Rabbit merchandise. Right? Yeah. So I said to the guy at the, f- the information desk, I said, uh, can you tell me where the Roger Rabbit merchandise is? He says, Oh, third floor. And I said, Oh, where on the third floor? He says, third floor <laughs> so i get up i get off the elevator and the entire third floor is roger rabbit merchandise the whole floor oh my god and your character <laughs> my character yeah my man. character and the first thing i right there by the door was a roger rabbit lunchbox i read roger rabbit lunchbox. i still have it yeah. so i bought that and i think it was like 295 <laughs> or something like that and i'm I'm walking uh, around looking at all this merchandise and I bump into Charlie Fleischer. Oh my God. And he's, he's walking around looking at all this merchandise. And, uh, he's, he says to me, he says, you get a piece of this? <laughs> I said, yeah. He says, you, he says, yeah. I said, what do you get? He says, I get everything with my voice. I said, I get everything. <laughs> and, and he actually got down on his hands and knees in the middle of Macy's and genuflected. <laughs> Oh, what a moment! Yeah. <laughs> and he, he actually—that's awesome. He actually signed. Uh, the, so I, I did buy the first thing I ever saw, which was Roger Rabbit's box, yeah. and then I bought a doll, and it's a talking doll, and it has Charlie's voice in it, and Charlie signed it for me, and it was uh, the first autograph that Charlie ever gave us Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, still have that too. Yeah. It was like with him in the Benny the Cab kind of cardboard box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. What was um, what was Charlie like? Like working with him and getting to know him. Uh, Charlie is one of the most legitimately funny guys I've ever met in my life. Yeah, he he is, um, he is always on. He's always he's always telling jokes, and they're they're really sincerely funny jokes. Yeah, um, and he. He's he's just so creative and so talented, and he has has such capabilities. That he's so they, smart, right? They, oh, he's so smart. He's a mathematics genius, right? And he he came up with this theory, Molegs. I think it's called Molegs. You have to ask Charlie. The TED talk. He did a TED talk, didn't he? he did a TED talk on yeah. Molegs. Yeah, and I mean it's way over my head. <laughs> but he's also uh, an incredible harmonica player. Learned oh, to wow. play harmonica from Toots Tillman who is um, one of the premier, Toots is dead now, all my heroes are gone. But uh, Toots was one of the premier harmonica players and taught Charlie how to play the harmonica. And Charlie is 
virtuoso harmonica player. And Charlie was the one who came up with the idea of dressing up in a Roger Rabbit costume on set. Yeah. So that Bob Hoskins would have something to work off. Wow. Yeah. Transdimensional acting or something? something. <laughs> probably Charlie. Uh, probably Charlie did. And Charlie's also a, an accomplished artist. He, he does fine art. I did not know that. He does that. a series of, uh, of paintings with red chairs mm. that are just uh, amazing. Yeah. He's like a renaissance man. Yeah, he really is. And I've done, I've done autograph shows with Charlie. Yeah. And when, he, when you do them, he has different things on his table. He has his Roger Rabbit stuff. Yeah. And then he has his fine art stuff. Had you seen him on Welcome Back, Carter? Before? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, so sure. You, when you found out he was going to voice your character, were you like, yes? I, when I heard him do Roger Rabbit, when I heard him do the voice, yeah. and, and the, he came up with the stuttered P. Uh, ah, cool. Uh, yeah, Dick Williams felt that every successful cartoon character, uh, big deal successful cartoon character, had a speech impediment. Donald Duck with his blah, 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 and Porky Pig and... Um, and so they, he wanted a, some kind of a speech impediment for Roger. Yeah. And they did all kinds of stuff. And finally, Charlie came up with a stuttered P. Then and helped inform the title of your second book. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah that, I mean, that was not in the original book, but it, yeah. it's in the second book. Yeah. And it is in the third book. <laughs> and will be forever after. Uh, but once I heard Charlie do the voice, um, from now on, when I shut my eyes and hear Roger's voice, it's Charlie. Yeah. I will never... I will never hear anybody else's voice. It's it's like Bob Hoskins. I mean, mm. everybody wanted Harrison Ford for that. Interesting. And Harrison Ford, when he found out it would take three years to do, he said no. Uh, then everybody wanted uh, Paul Newman, and you know, same deal. And they went through. You know, Bill we, Murray, right? Bill, Maybe? Bill Murray. Yeah. Bill Murray. They actually hired for a while until it became obvious that. He didn't believe tunes were real. He would look oh. at look at the tunes, and it was like, "Oh, you're a tune! Oh my God, what what was this all about?" Yeah, and so he couldn't make the audience believe they were real if he didn't believe it was real. So they fired him uh, and brought in Eddie Murphy. Whoa, what? Yeah, and Eddie Murphy when he came in, it was a case of rewriting the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes, and so yeah. that didn't work either. Yeah, so they fired him, and they. Kept looking. They looked at Kurt Russell, uh, James Woods, uh, William Peterson. I think William Peterson would have been good. But, um, and then on the other side of town, um, we're making the movie uh, Untouchables, mm -hmm. uh, Brian De Palma. And uh, Brian De Palma really wanted uh, De Niro for Capone. But De Niro had something else going on, so he couldn't. So Bob Hoskins was playing Capone. And Bobby De Niro comes back and tells De Palma, "Hey, I can. I got off early. I can do it after all." So Bob wow. Bob Hoskins is out of work and you know got nothing to do. So he comes in and reads for it. And I said, yeah, "There's no way. There's no way that a British actor, classically trained, he mm -hmm. you know he plays he plays the he plays the common working man, but he's classically trained. He's yeah. a classically trained British Shakespearean actor." And I said, there's no way that this guy is going to convince me that he's a prototypical L.A. private eye. But my golly, you know, you look at his, his audition tape, he's, he's playing to a blank room. And he not only has an American accent, 
but he's the only one who convinces you that that rabbit is real. Mm-hmm. And uh, as filming went on for years, um, toward the end of filming, he was he was he convinced me that he could see the rabbit it was there. It was real to him, and he he always told me that it, it was maybe six or eight months after the movie stopped filming before the rabbit disappeared. God, that's an amazing story, man. And the alchemy of his belief and able to channel that with your creating this really real noir world. Like, I can't imagine, it's hard to imagine that movie with anyone else but Hoskins. Yeah, I can't imagine it now. Yeah. Um, to show you what a great actor he was, when he's handcuffed to Roger. Yeah. Right? <laughs> All right, if, if you look at them, movie, you will see that those handcuffs are actually on a spring. So he is not only controlling his hand, but by moving his hand, he's controlling where the rabbit's arm is. Oh, wow. So that was him triggering it. That was him, yeah. And he was doing this. And um, so he's he's doing a, a ton of stuff there. And um, he was really the one who convince the audience that the rabbit was real. Yeah. If you look at his eyes, his eyes are always looking at the rabbit. Yeah. And there's no rabbit. Yeah. There's no rabbit there. Yeah. And they didn't put the rabbit where his eyes were. He knew where his eyes were supposed to go, and that's matched it up with the animation. And what makes it work is the emotional realism of what we're going back to earlier, that Roger had to help him believe something in himself, and no one was willing to take a chance on the yeah. rabbit. Yeah. And it kind of is interesting, Gary, because it's kind of like your book and your career. It's like this metaphor where you believed in this thing and someone took a chance on it and it touched the world. And that yeah. character, I always felt like Roger has depth and and so many, so much more levels than any other cartoon, you know, because mm-hmm. he's, the, he's, I don't know, we can all relate to that plucky, out of control character who, who, who just wants to be good but keeps messing up and needs to... He and Eddie, they teach each other something. And it's interesting you saying about it being like two sides of yourself, man. Yeah. It's really exactly. cool. Exactly. Um, your line where Jessica says, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. That's yeah. right from the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, what was it, what inspired that? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I, you know, I don't know. I, uh, it was, it was just a funny line. Yeah. And, um, I think I, I really, if I had it all to do over again, I probably should keep my, my notes, keep yeah. all the notes so that I could go back and see where lines like that come from because it probably just evolved over time from something else, probably evolved from I'm not bad yeah. to, oh, wait a minute, I'm drawn that way. Yeah, oh, that's clever. Yeah. That's clever. I, I, and I, I honestly don't know. And I, you know, I hate to, you know, I hate to plead the, uh, the absent-minded artiste, but like I say, I once estimated that I rewrote every page of Roger Rabbit at least 200 times. Wow. 200 times. Wow. Every single page, I rewrote it and kept making it better and making it better and making it better. And then when someone asked me, well, where did this come from? Right. I don't know. You know, maybe it was in the 75th draft. Maybe it was in the 118th. I don't know. And, you know, it's just probably a conglomeration of all of them. And that, that line, I feel like is everyone remembers that line from the movie, the most famous line. And it's so cool, man. It's right from your book. Yeah. Like, yeah. it carried through. Yeah. And I, I always thought that I, I'm, I got a 50-year-old lust and a 
three-year-old dinky was a far better line, but I <laughs> seem to be alone in that. Now. And for, a Dis- for Disney to put that in a movie, it's like, it was very cutting edge. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There was a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. A lot of discussion about that. And the, and the minor swearing and stuff like that. Yeah, they they left, uh, they actually left a lot of that in, the swearing and the drinking. Because if you look at the movie, it was going to get a G rating. Oh. And Steve Spielberg said, no, we don't want a G rating. Uh, in fact, PG-13 is called the Steven Spielberg rating because it's, it's you know, racier than a PG, but yeah. not an R. Uh. Steve Spielberg, and Disney too probably, didn't want this movie to be a G or PG movie because they felt that people would think it was a child's movie. They didn't want it to be an R movie because they would cut out the kids, but yeah. PG-13. So they left a lot of the swearing and the drinking in just so they could get a PG-13 rating. And like the... Uh Michael Eisner's number on the wall for good time called Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Like all the, and then the little subtle, the legendary stuff, which we don't have to go into too much, but like the scenes, the splice scenes, like your character connected those two worlds and that was able to like make it more adult, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. To, to wrap up, Gary, like if you were to go back and meet yourself when you were growing up as a kid, what, and like knowing you'd created one of the most famous, iconic characters of all animation history, like, would you believe that th- this life happened? Like, it's, it must seem surreal to you. No, I, I would never believe it. If yeah. I, I mean, if somebody went back and told my my eight, nine, ten-year-old self, hey, you know, someday you're going to be the legendary Gary K. Wolf, I'd say, crazy, forget it. I mean, it's just never going to happen. And, and even when I started writing, I never imagined that my books would still be in print 30 years after I wrote them. <laughs> And they still be selling well. And, yeah. Uh, and I, I never thought that it, when I die, if I die, because I, you know, I'm, I'm aging in reverse now, <laughs> but, uh, that somebody will put on my tombstone, he created Roger Rabbit, and that'll be enough. I mean, that'll be good. I, no, I never would have believed it. Yeah. It, it, would you give yourself any advice? Or do you think that would have jinxed your chances? Um, write faster, <laughs> write more, uh, hire better lawyers. I don't, I, uh, I don't, I don't know. No, I, I think uh, I've been pretty happy with my life. Uh, you know, I, I look back and and there's been a whole lot more joy than misery, and a whole lot more happiness than sorrow. Um, and a lot of that is a result of the characters I've created. And the fans who have reacted to those characters in positive ways just make me feel great. And in a way, Roger helping Eddie, he's made your life. He's made my life better. Amazing. Thank you for your time, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. um, So so nobody's going to ask the boxers for brief story? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We were on the Facebook group. I was like, what should I ask him? And you wrote boxers of brief. What what do you wear? I didn't want to embarrass you. Uh, Boxers and briefs. (laughs) Both at the same time. Sometimes I alternate those. Sometimes the boxers are on the outside, the briefs on the inside. Sometimes the briefs on the on the inside, and the boxers on the outside. So it, is that because you're a marathon runner, right? right. <laughs> Keep everything together. Um, GaryWolf.com, right? Or GaryKWolf.com? Uh, GaryWolf.com. Somebody yeah. else actually already took Gary K. Wolf. What? So it's GaryWolf.com, uh, and my books are available on Amazon. But uh, go to GaryWolf.com, and you'll learn more than you ever wanted to know about me. And then you're active in the Roger Rabbit Facebook group. Ah, uh, yes, I am. But yeah. what's if anyone wanted to like write you a fan email or tweet just through your website? Yeah, through yeah. my website, and I answer them all. 
That's yeah. amazing. You're a humble, kind gentleman. I want to thank you personally for creating That's Roger my, Rabbit. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for your Take time. Care. Take yeah, care. My pleasure. Dust on his desk where he sat, you remember. Trips to Catalina every December. Ringland Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. On the road with your dad, but it seems like lately. You don't want to get up, want to sleep all day, but it's never enough. Plus Dolores stopped calling. In your dreams, the piano keeps falling. You saw Betty in the club. Whiskey in your cup, wish you had someone to love. Toontown, no, you haven't been back. When the memories return, you'll be sipping on that jack. And you're tripping on the fact that a tune would attack and leave your brother flat. Now, pieces what you lack. Used to be a lot of laughs way back in the day. Now, you drink so you can sleep and the nightmares go away. But you still see those eyes glowing red in his head as you toss and turn in your Murphy bed. Remember how you saved Huey, Dewey, and Louie? Cleared Goofy's name, just like in the movies where the good guys win. Finding a balance, no case too big for valiant and valiant. That's why you miss your little brother. So if we need to find you, you'll be hiding in these covers Eddie undercover. Valiant. We can work it out, work it out, work it out. Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down. Cause we haven't seen you around. Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Eddie going Valiant. down. We can work it out, work it out, work it out. Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down. Cause we haven't seen you around. Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the you town remember going laughter. Down. That high squeaky voice, those burning red eyes How you had to make a choice Should you chase the tune down Yoxer Street Or stay with your brother, it was hard to see But Teddy never made it, he was crushed, you see Now you no longer trust the LAPD Cause they never found leads on that crooked tune In the dark alleyway, Teddy met his doom When you see the hills, all shiny and green You can't go back, cause you still hear his screams And now you know they've got meetings to help with the grief But you can't leave the house, think you'll take 40 winks And it's been 40 weeks since you last touched his desk Newspaper clippings in a pile, you can guess The Valiant Bros had the best reputation The gumshoes would come through, what a combination You pray one day you'll laugh again Call bugs up, like way back when Say, what's up, doc? Man, how you been? It will be so good to finally see your friends Because they've always been there When you're ready, you pour one out For your brother Teddy But until then, you're sleeping in Cause you can't face a world that he's not in Eddie Valiant we can work it out, work it out, work it out. Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down. Cause we haven't seen you around. Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town going Eddie down. Valiant. We can work it out, work it out, work it out. Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down. Cause we haven't seen you around. Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town going down. You got a call from RK Maroon. World renowned for maroon cartoons Went to his office, poured yourself a drink Saw Dumbo through the window and it made you think What the flying elephant in the room might be Saw his face in the glass and you took a seat On Maroon's newest project, he needed a hand He was over budget, 25 grand Cause a famous actor couldn't learn his lines A broken hearted rabbit, you were like, never mind You don't work for tunes anymore, don't be silly Forget Screwy Squirrel, forget Chilly Willy Forget Dinky Doodle, you had to let him go just ask Angelo, you don't work for them no more You said, okay, you better call someone else Cause tunes on the run are bad for your health Eddie Valiant We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Eddie going Valiant down. We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Now I know down. why you yank my ears all those times you yank my 
ears Cause you're mad at tunes Deep down it's clear Hey, you're mad at tunes And you've been for years Now I know why you yank my ears All those times you yank my ears Cause you're mad at tunes Deep down it's clear Yeah, you're mad at tunes And you've been for years Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down uh, Shout out to Rich Matthew He made that EP with me and it's uh I'm super proud of it and that was my interview with Gary K Wolf like I can check that off my bucket list of people I wanted to meet and talk to and he really <laughs> indulged all my questions you could hear I totally was a huge fan and am a huge fan and yeah Roger Rabbit is the greatest character of all time because he's a deep interesting character so next week we have an interview with Brad aka the Red Box Chili Pepper from Phone Losers of America one of the best prank call YouTubers, hacker, freakers in the world. I'm, I talked to him when I was in Portland and we talked about his run-ins with the FBI, the artistic value of pranking, uh, his history as a hacker. As promised, here's the promo code for 50% off of everything on mclars.net, which is my merch site. The promo code is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Nah, that's from Mary Poppins. The promo code is, drum roll, I was hitting the desk. The promo code is podcast. So thank you again to Gary. I'm dropping the Chronicles of Narnia on Patreon. We've got a great episode next week with Brad from Phone Losers of America. Let's end with a quote from Roger Rabbit from the movie. He says to Eddie, a laugh can be a very powerful thing. Sometimes in life, it's the only weapon we have. Oh, that is real. That is great. And uh, I think we can end on that. So thank you all for your support. And Gary, again, it was awesome meeting you. And yeah, I'm really proud of this episode. More awesomeness coming soon. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Talk to you soon.